funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, in the first primary debate of this election season, leading Senate Democrat candidates Andy Kim and Tammy Murphy spar over who's most qualified for the job. I think you see the battle lines. I think the battle lines are drawn and you see how this, this primary is now going to play itself out. Also, Patterson joins calls for a ceasefire. Mayor Saya and other local organizations are calling on President Biden to support a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. It's been 137 days of ongoing genocide against the people of Gaza, funded, paid for, and supported by our government. Plus, bald eagles are making a comeback. A new report finds a growing population as the Garden State continues its conservation efforts. And it's a testament to the conservation efforts right. that have been going on for the last 40 years. And a possible speed bump for the state's electric vehicle mandate as a new poll finds the state is divided on making the switch. New Jerseyans feel that the electric vehicles mandate will definitely have a negative effect, a negative impact when it comes to financial issues. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining me this Monday night. I'm Raven Santana in for Brianna Venozzi. It was a civil but tense 90 minutes as First Lady Tammy Murphy and Congressman Andy Kim met for the first debate in the battle to secure the Democratic nomination to replace indicted senior Senator Bob Menendez. The two leading Democratic candidates sparred over a number of topics, including party loyalty, student debt, health care, and foreign policy. The debate was sponsored by the New Jersey Globe on New Jersey and the Repovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. And it comes as the race appears to be tightening. Tammy Murphy surged ahead early on with a series of high-profile endorsements, but Andy Kim has been gaining ground with a 12-point lead over Murphy in the first head-to-head -head poll so far in the contest. There isn't much daylight between the two candidates on key issues, but as senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, they wasted no time challenging one another's credentials. The top two candidates in this first debate tangled without making any deadly gaffes or viral videos. Congressman Andy Kim and First Lady Tammy Murphy spent much of the 90-minute virtual face-off politely skewering each other over political procedures and past Republican connections, each insisting it disqualified the other from properly representing Jersey Democrats in the U.S. Senate. I worry about, uh, honestly, the, the record of the First Lady. Not only was she a registered Republican voting in every single Republican primary through the Obama administration, but she donated six figures worth of donations to Republican candidate and institutions over time. Uh, I don't feel confident in terms of what her positions are. With respect to the Republican Party, um, the Republican Party left me. There was, no, there was no road left. My opponent has uh, 
sided with the Trump administration and with the Republicans so many times. Please check his record out if you don't believe me. Murphy noted she's donated a lot more money to Democrats and called out Kim's procedural vote on a Republican border bill. The congressman replied he voted to impeach Donald Trump twice. Micah Rasmussen served as a debate panelist and said both candidates back basic Democratic values like gun control and abortion rights, but... I think the, the differences in this race are fundamentally political. They are fundamentally questions of difference in personality, differences of approach. I think you see the battle lines. I think the battle lines are drawn and you see how this, this primary is now going to play itself out. Nowhere is the battle more fierce than the question of Tammy Murphy's benefiting from her husband's political influence to gain insider access to the advantageous county line set by party bosses on primary ballots in 19 of Jersey's 21 counties. Right now, we don't see a fair process when it comes to this Senate race. And that's something that I see, I know a lot of people across New Jersey see, and that's a real problem. If we can have agreement on sharing the lines in all 19 counties that have a county line, we can make that agreement right now and be able to talk through this about how we can have greater fairness. We all are going to continue working within the system that we have. For me, this is just one piece of the puzzle. The fact of the matter is that I am going to earn every single vote that I get by working hard every single day and, and visiting and listening to people on the ground. But in a post-debate gaggle, Kim said the governor's trying to help his wife by leaning on Burlington County Democrats, who are likely to give favorite son Kim that coveted county line during their upcoming convention. The governor is literally making phone calls to people in my county on behalf of his wife, trying to pressure people into having a shared line at the Burlington Convention next weekend, and I find that ridiculous and frankly repulsive. Why would Andy Kim go along with um, sharing the line that he's expected to win if that's not reciprocated in counties where she's expected to win the line. You know, it's sort of an all or nothing proposition. Kim didn't name names, but Murphy's campaign flatly replied, what Congressman Kim's saying is not true. In his desperate attempt to secure the same county lines he endlessly fundraises off of abolishing, Congressman Kim's seeing ghosts around every corner. Two progressive candidates, Larry Hamm and Patricia Campos Medina, failed to qualify for the debate, and the incumbent indicted Senator Bob Menendez didn't reply to the debate invitation. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. First Lady Tammy Murphy and Congressman Andy Kim searched for weak spots in last night's Senate debate. They also both tried to use the hour and a half to make their case to New Jerseyans as to why a Democrat should be elected to office. So how do Republicans counter the early momentum for Democrats in this race? Joining me now to share his perspective on the debate is Republican strategist Chris Russell. All right, Chris, first off, who do you think came off better in this debate and who had the stronger performance? Well, listen, I think Andy Kim certainly is the smoother of the two mm -hmm. when debating. I, I thought um, Tammy Murphy got better, I thought, as the debate went on. But at the beginning, she looked nervous. I, I thought, and this is just something, you know, I would look at, I thought her background setting was strange. Uh, he, You know, Kim just looked a little bit more polished and professional throughout. And I thought... Um, you know, that's certainly an advantage. I, I think these Zoom debates are also very difficult mm -hmm. because clearly at, at the beginning, at least, Tammy Murphy on her opening statement was reading it. Uh, and I, whether Andy Kim was or he wasn't, I couldn't tell. So I, I thought Kim was the winner in style, certainly. 
Interesting point. You know, a recurring point of contention was party loyalty. Kim questioned Murphy's background as a Republican, and she jabbed back by reminding him of his, working with the Bush administration, and arguing he'd voted in favor of funding for Trump's border wall, which he denied. Was this a successful line of attack for either candidate? Um, listen, I, I think with the Tammy Murphy, whether she's a, a good Democrat or not, because she was a once a Republican, I don't know that that really sticks. I also don't think the attack that Andy Kim is somehow disloyal because he voted for a few you know, bills in Congress or, or certain motions in Congress that may have uh, sided him with Republicans. Uh, he was in a competitive district at the time. So I thought both of those attacks fell flat in my mind. I thought where Andy Kim really uh, was able to hit her though, is the idea that you when know, Tim Murphy was talking about we need a new generation, we, needed, we need to get away from the status quo. I mean, Andy Kim is younger. He would be the first Korean American in that role in the United States Senate. Mm -hmm. um, Tammy Murphy is the, the wife of the governor. And whether she likes it or not, and I know it's an inconvenient thing for the campaign, but it's impossible for her to call someone else the status quo when she is coming out from that role and has all the party support she has. So I thought both of their attacks on, on kind of who's more who's more Democrat or who's more legitimate as Democrat fell flat. But I thought overall, I just don't see how Tim Murphy gets around the idea that she's the first lady and is being handed uh, all these county lines. I think it's a very difficult argument for her to make that she's somehow, uh, you know, the fresh face here. Well, Chris, here's the thing. You know, it didn't seem, there didn't seem to be a lot of political differences between the two candidates. What do you think voters will be basing their decision on who to vote for in June? I think they're going to base a decision on a few things. Listen, the, the party lines have impact, so that will help uh, Tammy Murphy in this thing at some level. She's going to derive a benefit from the county lines. I just don't know that it'll be enough to overcome Kim. I think people are looking at this race uh, and, and you know, as they say in, in boxing, right, fights are about, uh, you know, matchups and styles. And I think in this case, Andy Kim has a perfect argument to make against her, that she is uh, the candidate of the insiders, She's someone who's being handed the nomination on the platter because who she is, not what she's done. And I think that's something that is going to help drive this underdog narrative for Kim. He's raising uh, a lot of money, so he's not going to be outspent here. Um, I, you know, I like, I like his chances in this thing to pull off a, a big upset. I think the Murphys bit off more than they can chew on this one, and that it just is not sitting right with voters in their own party. And just lastly, before we wrap, it's been more than 50 years, Chris, since New Jersey sent a Republican to the Senate. Do you see a pathway for any of the Republican candidates who have declared they're running? Listen, certainly there's a pathway. I mean, listen, we've, we've elected governors in this state multiple times. We've, uh, uh, you know, Jack Chitterelli almost pulled off an upset against Governor Murphy in 21. So I, while New Jersey's a blue state, I don't think it's a far left state or, or, or a far, uh, a very liberal state. So I think there's an opportunity. However, as we've said, I mean, 50 years is not just an accident, right? There's a reason why that's happening. I think there's a, a difficulty Republicans have to win a U.S. Senate race in this state. That's been proven over time. I think if Tammy Murphy is the nominee, she opens up a different line of attack for them uh, to, to attack her as, again, same, same way Kim is, which I think is compelling. But I think this race is challenging for Republicans at the end of the day. But we have, a, we have several good candidates. Uh, and, and politics is unpredictable. That's why we're talking about it. That's why That's people right. love reading about it. That's so right. yeah, you never know. If you're on the ballot, you can win. And I think uh, the Republicans, whoever emerges, you know, will have to run a good campaign, but there's always a path. That's right. You never know. Chris, thanks for joining me.
You too. Thank you for having me. In last night's Senate debate, neither candidate endorsed a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, with both calling for the immediate release of hostages being held by Hamas. On Friday, President Biden said he has pushed Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for a temporary ceasefire to get the hostages out of Gaza, and that he's urged Israel not to proceed with a ground offensive in Rafah without a clear plan to protect more than a million Palestinians who are sheltering there. But today, Israel said it will move ahead with military operations in Rafah if Hamas does not release the remaining hostages by the start of Ramadan early next month. According to the health ministry, the death toll in Gaza has surpassed 29,000. Here in New Jersey, Palestinian residents in Patterson gathered to call on President Biden to support a permanent ceasefire as they mourn the loss of loved ones killed in Israeli airstrikes. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports. The death toll is 29,000, 18,000 since November 16th when we called for the ceasefire. Mayor Andre Saya today renewed Patterson's calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, pointing to the 18,000 men, women and children who've been killed in the region in just the last three months since the city first called on the Biden administration to take action. And that's why on President's Day, we are speaking directly to the president of the United States and we're making a universal humanitarian appeal to our president. And we're calling for a permanent ceasefire, for a permanent peace and a permanent resolution in the region. Patterson has one of the largest Palestinian American populations in the U.S., according to Saya, and several spoke today about the devastating deaths of their loved ones in Gaza. It's been 137 days of ongoing genocide against the people of Gaza, funded, paid for, and supported by our government. This is not something far off. 2,000, at least 2,000 members of our families have been killed. 19 members of my family have been killed. I wish we didn't have to get that phone call saying, I'm sorry, Uncle Muhammad is dead. And four generations are dead with him. My one-year-old cousin, who didn't even live to see her first birthday, is dead. 15 members of my cousins and my uncle and his wife and his grandchildren who had been killed in the first week. It is a time of one humanity to come together to stop this war today, not tomorrow. Today, not only ceasefire for one month or two months. We want permanent ceasefire. Their message comes as the International Court of Justice began hearing arguments today on the need for a two-state solution in the region, an argument raised before this war began. Here in Patterson, a diverse group of faith leaders, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian, joined in that call to the president. We are outraged that President Biden is apparently planning to again veto a UN Security Council resolution for a ceasefire even as Netanyahu threatens more attacks on Rafa. This conflict has seen over 29,000 deaths, and about two-thirds of that number are women and children. Reports have stated that up to 80% of Palestinians have been driven out of their homes and have been left to starve. According to Oxfam International, about 250 Palestinians are killed per day. The Pope has also called multiple times for a ceasefire. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, 
Joe Biden's administration is set to send what is said to be enough munitions to be able to continue the slaughter in Gaza for another 19 weeks. Mayor Saya is urging New Jersey local and state officials to join in his call, although the number stands at just four municipalities that have called for a ceasefire. Newark and Jersey City have not yet added their voices to this movement, despite calls from their community members to do so. 70 cities have called for a ceasefire, nine of them are in Michigan, but there are 564 municipalities in New Jersey alone so we want other mayors to call or sign on for this call for a permanent ceasefire. He says there could be devastating political impacts on those who don't. In Patterson, I'm Joanna Gagas and Jay Spotlight News. The bald eagle is making a comeback here in New Jersey. Last month, the state's Division of Fish and Wildlife, in partnership with the nonprofit Conserve Wildlife Foundation of New Jersey, released its annual report for the bald eagle project. For the sixth year in a row, the population has increased, highlighting what has been one of the state's most successful conservation efforts. And that success has been in part due to the help of about 150 volunteer nest monitors. To explain more, I'm joined by contributing writer for NJ Spotlight News, Andrew Lewis. Andrew, there was a time when spotting a bald eagle was virtually impossible. Not so much the case now. What has been the main game changer? Yeah, it's been a variety of things, really. Um, in the 1980s, the state of New Jersey really aggressively pursued uh, bringing back the, the bald eagle population. They uh, isolated nests uh, and they the, the one remaining nest actually in South Jersey, they made sure to, to protect it from any human interference. They did what they called a um, hacking experiment where they actually took the eggs out of the out of the nesting pairs nest because at that time because of DDT pollution that the eggshells were too soft, so they incubated the shells themselves in a lab. And then um, another really important thing is they imported 60 bald eagles from Canada in the late 80s. And those, um, I believe they were juveniles, and they actually ended up flourishing and doing pretty well in the state. So let's talk about these volunteer nest monitors. I watched the video, and let's just say the job isn't for the faint of heart. How many are there and what, you know, where have they monitored nests and kind of what does that job, you explain to that, to, to, to viewers about what that job means. Yeah, I mean, if you're, uh, if you're a bird enthusiast, it's a pretty great gig, I think. There are about 150, uh, I think that's volunteers and then also folks like uh, Kathy Clark with NJDEP and Larissa Smith with uh, Conserve Wildlife Foundation. So essentially a team of 150 volunteers and they just, they watch these birds. And of course, sort of the thing they're looking for the most is to see juveniles hatch, uh, parents uh, change roles, you know, uh, the mom might head out for a flight and the, and the father will take over the nest and vice versa. So they're, they're just looking for any interactions in, in the nest areas. In the United States, they're no longer considered endangered. In New Jersey, they are considered endangered during this incubation period that I mentioned earlier. Um, but also, as I mentioned in the story, the state 
is considering delisting them or not really mm -hmm. delisting, but downlisting them to species of special concern. So they'll still have, you know, some protection, but it won't be as sort of stringent as an endangered protection. And that's, you know, great news. And it's a testament to the conservation efforts right. that have been going on for the last 40 years. Well, I love to hear it. Andrew Lewis, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Raven. In tonight's Spotlight on Business Report, New Jerseyans know the benefits of electric cars, but that doesn't mean they're ready to switch. A new Rutgers Eagleton poll finds half of Garden State residents are opposed to Governor Murphy's plan to phase out the sale of new gas-powered vehicles by 2035. A majority of people said they understand electric is better for public health and the environment, but a majority also said they are not likely to buy electric, citing concerns about EV costs and charging station availability. The poll comes as the New York Times reports that the Biden administration is considering tweaking the federal emissions standards rules that will drive the electric vehicle transition. According to the report, the proposed rules may be adjusted to be more lenient in coming years, likely delaying the mass switch to EVs until after 2030 in response to political pressure from auto workers' unions. Former President Donald Trump has been strongly opposed to electric cars. Ashley Koning of Rutgers says the push for electric will be an important issue this campaign season. The tricky thing here is even though opinion is split, pretty evenly, you know, it's it's politicians kind of have to be wary when treading uh, this issue simply because you don't know where independents are necessarily going to lie, especially if they look much more like overall New Jerseyans or like Republicans, and especially because those who are most supportive are already squarely in the Democrats camp and are not new voters that the Democrats could turn out in their favor. Harrison Malkin is a producer with NJ Spotlight News, working every day on political stories. But he's done a lot in the world of food and culture, working as a tasting guide at South Hill Cider and as an apprentice cheesemaker at a dairy farm featured in Action Bronson show, F, That's Delicious. Now Harrison is the creator and host of a new travel and culture podcast with NJPBS called Off Exit. The first episode just came out and he joins me now in the studio. Harrison, we have talked wine before. We have spoken about places to eat. You have, a, you always have good places. You, good always suggestions, always. Oh, and recipes. We swap recipes. Yeah, it's true. But now you're taking all that passion and you're putting it into a podcast called Off Exit. First, let's start off with the name. I, I understand you had about 30 names prior to picking this one. Why Off Exit? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I did have a lot of names. I was just writing basically every idea down <laughs> <laughs> on Google Docs. And this felt like the best name. It yeah. felt most true to me. I'm a fairly spontaneous person, so mm -hmm. I'm always trying new restaurants, visiting small towns in New Jersey. Um, and it spoke to the nature of the show, which is me going off exit, off the beaten path, meeting people and trying to tell and capture their stories. Tell me a little bit about why you chose to focus on food, travel, and culture. Like, how did that all come about? 
I mean, food and travel are fun. It's fun to cover, fun to learn about. And these are kinds of the stories that everyone can appreciate, right? Stuff yeah. is divisive these days, but everyone can Very kind true. of get behind right. these stories. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, radio and podcasting is something that I've done for the last few years. And it's the medium that's the most immersive for me. So when I'm doing these stories, I'm hoping that people can feel like they're there with me. So in the first episode, I'm at a mushroom farm in Somerset County, and people can feel like they're cultivating mushrooms with me. There's later episodes where at a jazz show, people can feel like they're hearing really good music with me, or they're at a surf competition. They can feel like they hear the tides crashing and the waves coming and going. So I just want people to feel like they're on the scene and also learning something because learning something new is you know what public media is all about so you really do cover a variety of topics tell me a little bit about if you can give us a sneak peek um, into episode two and kind of what can viewers expect when listening to this podcast yeah episode two is one that I'm really excited about it's about a, a, a jazz artist who's from Teaneck uh, jazz is a genre and a thing that we don't hear much about, but it's something that I love. I've always been a fan of jazz. And so for me, it's a way to showcase jazz is still happening, the legacy mm -hmm. is being continued, and there's young artists like this one who's able to kind of innovate and create in the space. And so I spent a lot of time with him and his music, going to clubs and even a church, hearing him perform. Wow. <laughs> and so you get a full profile of who this guy is, what his music is about, and why you should you know, be a listener. Um, so that's the, the second episode. Um, but we have a lot of really interesting food and culture topics. And for me, it's like New Jersey is its own special place. Like we're sandwiched and we're often overshadowed by that's two right. major media markets. <laughs> yeah. We have Philadelphia and we have New York City, but we have our own stories here. And so I'm trying to tell some of those stories. Harrison, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Raven. And you can listen to the first episode of Off Exit and catch future episodes by downloading and subscribing wherever you get your podcast. That does it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Raven Santana for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. NJM Insurance Group has been serving New Jersey businesses for over a century. As part of the Garden State, we help companies keep their vehicles on the road, employees on the job, and projects on track. Working to protect employees from illness and injury, to keep goods and services moving across the state. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.